And as if they had studied as expected, they would have done better. We've all done that, said that many times. If we begin listening for these kinds of comments, we will discover that attempting to control the way others think of us is one of the primary uses we put words to in contemporary society. Human conversation is largely an endless attempt to convince others that we are more assertive or clever or gentle or impressive or successful, you fill in the blank, than they might think if we did not carefully educate them. In what ways were you doing impression management this past week? And this is especially true in our 24-7 social media world, you know, that beckons people to curate their lives and present it to the world for affirmation, for approval, for admiration, which can breed, of course, self-obsession, self-promotion, right? So we're continuing our series here on the Sermon on the Mount in which the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the perfect knower, lover, and redeemer of our souls, what he's doing passage after passage, he's discipling us into a life of radiant righteousness and freedom. And in our passage today, he confronts this religious righteousness that's more about impression management gaining the notice, approval, admiration of others, then it is really about God. You know, this is one of the many forms of religious hypocrisy that God despises and honestly repels people from church. And that's why it's so crucial that we heed this word this morning and we walk in the way that Jesus intends. So I want us to understand this passage under these three headings this morning. So this is my outline. First, we're going to look at the futility of seeking people's approval. The futility of seeking people's approval. And then secondly, we're going to see the reward of seeking God in secret. The reward of seeking God in secret. And lastly, we're going to look at the habits that reap such reward, okay? So that's my outline. First, the futility of seeking people's approval. If you look in your Bible, verse 1 is a summary of the main point of this whole section of the sermon. This is Jesus' thesis statement here. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, this does not mean that we are to never practice our righteousness, you know, pray and do these things before others, period. Right? So, you know, if you're like in community group and your leader asks you to pray, you have to go run into the bathroom and go lift up a prayer to God in private in the John like in secret, out of uh, the sight of others, right? Some take it to this ridiculous extreme. And that's not what Jesus is really saying here. In fact, earlier in the sermon, in chapter 5, verse 16, if you remember, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven. Wait, don't we have a direct contradiction here? Are we to show others our good works or not? Well, Jesus, of course, never contradicts himself. In chapter 5, verse 16, he's talking about letting others see our Christian lives, seeing, letting others see our good works, not hiding our light under a basket so that others may see and glorify God, not us. And then here in this passage, Jesus condemns our showing our righteousness before others out of what motive? The phrase is clear. In order to be seen by them, by others. Out of a twisted motive to be glorified ourselves. You know, uh, there's this old Scottish theologian, A.B. Bruce. He put it well to resolve this tension when he said, we are to 
show when tempted to hide, and we are to hide when tempted to show. I think we all know situations when each apply. There are situations when we are tempted to hide who we are in Jesus, who we are as Christians, and that's when we need boldness and courage to share who we are, to show our light. But then there are many situations when we are tempted to show out of that wrong motive, and that's where we need to hide, right? And then the rest of this passage unpacks verse 1 using three spiritual practices that the Jews uh, observed regularly and that we Christians are to regularly practice. But these practices were being twisted and used for personal acclaim. And what are those three spiritual disciplines? Giving, praying, and fasting. So real quick, let's look at each one of these. Verse 2, when giving. Right? So back then there were Jews, such as including the religious leaders and the Pharisees, that when they gave alms, offering generously to a need, they were tooting their own horn, so to speak, drawing attention to themselves and what they were doing. And Jesus calls them, and he uses this word throughout this passage, hypocrites. Now, it's good for you to know that this word that Jesus uses in the Greek was the same word that referred to theater actors back in that day, you know, in these Greek plays. And during these plays, they wore different masks to play various roles. So you know what Jesus is saying? When people give and sacrificially serve others in order to be recognized, approved, admired, validated, you're a performing actor. That's what you are, playing to the audience. You see the world as your stage. That's what Jesus is saying there, right? Such showy giving, it's maybe more subtle today than it was so overt back then, but we all know times when we, you know, drop that hint of what we did, you know, for other people. On social media, you know, mentioning things that we do for others, you know, dropping in. Now it's in forms of what's like humble brags, you know, that term, right? So I came across one of one guy saying, you know, guy who rents my apartment lost his job, told him not to worry about rent this month, paying it forward, baby. It's kind of putting it off as a joke, but why even post that at all? Why even mentioning you're doing that? Keep that to yourself. Nobody needs to know, right? We do those kinds of things all the time. Can you imagine how much less money would be given in general if there was no naming of buildings, no listing of donors, no public announcements, no one knowing who these people are. Some of these organizations, charities, ministries would lose their endowments. That's how people are motivated. You see, in God's eyes, giving to be praised by others is not truly giving to the needy. It's giving to yourself. You're using the poor to serve yourself rather than actually serving the poor. You see, in God's eyes, it's not only the act itself, but just as much the motive behind it that matters to him. And then in verse 5, Jesus talks about prayer when you pray. And back then, there were set times in the day when the Jews in Jerusalem were to stop whatever they were doing, wherever they were, and pray. And some commentators mentioned that in Jerusalem, probably at the temple, there were trumpets that sounded to give that notice. Here's the set time that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, stop and pray. Now, if you knew and anticipated those set times, what would you be tempted to do? Would you be tempted like these hypocrites 
to conveniently just so happen to be found in some public place where you know other church folk might see you? That's what these religious leaders, it just so happened when the trumpet sounded from the temple, oh, you're on a street corner where all these people are around where you're, so that you offer your prayer to be seen by others, right? That temptation there. You know, in other ways, we can make prayer more about ourselves, make it so self-focused rather than God-focused, right? Let me just ask you a couple questions here regarding prayer specifically. Ask yourself this, do I pray more frequently and fervently when alone with God or when I am with others or in public? Or how about this one? What do I think about when praying in public or with others? Am I so busy scrambling to find words impressive to others that I'm not really concentrating my attention on God who I am speaking to. I mean, you all know how it is, right? In community group, you know, let's go around and let's say a prayer and you're hoping, let me be one of the last ones, right? Why? So you have time. And as the circle is going around and as other people are praying, what are you doing? Your mind is a mile away of what, from what others are saying because you're crafting this linguistically beautiful and holy offering up to God. So when it comes time to say your prayer, man, what a prayer that is, man. Wish I could pray like that person. Well, you had the most time out of anybody else. And that's what you were focusing on, right? That's praying for the audience of people, not truly for God. And then verse 16, Jesus talks about fasting. You know how tempting when people are fasting to show that they're fasting, overtly acting the part, or at least dropping hints here and there. You know, so during mealtimes or just throughout the day, you're just like, oh, man, you know, your face kind of down. And then someone asks, dude, what's wrong? Are you Okay. Oh, I'm just hungering more for God today. I'm just seeking him today, you know. And of course, this showiness, again, whether in obvious or subtle ways that we do it, are not limited to just these disciplines, right? We have this need to draw attention to how knowledgeable, right, how sacrificial, This is a big one for many of us. How busy. Oh, my life is just constantly on the go. I have this and this and this. I have all these people to meet nonstop, right? How committed we are for God and for people. Impression management. And in so doing, really what it is, is using God to serve ourselves rather than actually serving Now, I want you to understand why Jesus tells you not to live, act like such hypocrites, not to perform your righteousness to the audience of many. And this is really surprising as I studied this passage, you know, because he could have said, don't do that for the eyes of others because it's just straight up wrong. It's just straight up selfish. It's self-exalting. But actually, that's not what Jesus says. If you look, he repeats in verses 2, 5, and 16. He says, you know, if you do this for the eyes of others, what does he repeat? He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, don't do it for the eyes of others because if that cheap dopamine rush of people's approval, which, by the way, has the lasting power of chewing gum that you get at a restaurant at the end of a meal, which is about 10 seconds of taste, and then it's done with. You need another piece. That's how long it lasts. That's how satisfying it is. If 
people's approval is what you're after, that and that alone is all you're going to get. And you will not get a reward from your Father in heaven whose approval is the only one in the universe that ultimately matters. You hear that Jesus is actually appealing to your self-interest. He's out for your good here. He's saying, don't perform your righteousness for others because you're chipping yourself from the very best reward there is when you do that. Why are you continuing to shortchange yourself? When you're a performing actor, living for the audience of the world, that's the futility of seeking people's approval. Now let's look next at the reward of seeking God in secret. The test of authentic devotion to God and the cultivating, how you cultivate that authentic devotion to God in your life is one and the same. And that is through the discipline of secrecy. Secrecy. Recovery from approval addiction happens not in Alcoholics Anonymous. It happens in Righteousness Anonymous. Hardy har har. I thought that was clever the way I put it. What a tough crowd this morning, right? No response. Righteousness Anonymous is what we need. See, being able to seek and serve God when no one's looking, right, is the true test of whether you're really doing it for God's glory and not yours. And the only way to grow in such authentic devotion is, again, to keep practicing that. And that's why through this passage, Jesus, with each of these spiritual disciplines, instructs you to do all that you can to do them secretly. So look at verses 3 and 4 when he talks about giving. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, this phrase sounds nice and lofty, but what does this mean practically? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Right? So when you give to others, when you serve others, when you press send on Venmo cash to someone, you put your left hand behind your back so it doesn't know, what does this practically mean, look like? Well, as I was thinking about this, what it means is that when you do something generous, sacrificial for others, don't congratulate yourself. Be self-forgetful. Right? Not only should you avoid telling others about your generosity or sacrificial service, you shouldn't even tell yourself is what Jesus is getting at. You know that you have ways to go if, you know, whenever you do something for somebody or give generously, your focus is so much upon yourself and what you've done. And just mull that over in your mind repeatedly. Oh, look at what I've done. That's your left hand knowing what your right hand is doing. Or your focus is on so much the response, the appreciation, the recognition that you receive or you don't receive in light of what you've done for a person. But if you practice, and it's a discipline, if you practice unassuming generosity, then you know what? Over time, by the grace of God, you can get to a place where you experience healthy self-forgetfulness when you serve others and you give to others. You can get to a point where it's like second nature, right? You're not tempted when you do those things to think highly. Better yet, you don't think at all about yourself. You just do it and move on to the next thing. Perhaps some of you in the room have gotten there. All of us can get there for generosity, sacrificial services. It's just second nature. You're not thinking about yourself. If you faithfully practice unassuming generosity. 
And then verse six says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And then verses 17 and 18, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. By the way, let me just remind you, with these things that Jesus says, even the most practical nitty gritty of, uh, of instructions, these are not just suggestions from him for you to consider. This is the Lord Jesus. This is commands for you to obey. So when you pray, go to a place where your devotion is only known to God. Don't somehow let others know, drop hints. Don't post on Facebook, Instagram, you know, thankful I have time to do my quiet time today, you know. And the picture is your Bible open with all these notes scribbled. What's the purpose of that, right? It's so that people know, right? Don't do that. When fasting, look glad, not gloomy. Now, I know that some of you in the room, maybe you college guys, you don't get much privacy in your current living situation, right? So it's okay if unintentionally, you know, your housemate, your roommate, or whatever, you know, finds you praying. Or, you know, when you're fasting, it's hard around mealtimes or when you're around people to avoid people noticing that, all right? So when Jesus is talking about things, these things, we're not needing to be overly scrupulous about it, but we all know the difference between unintentionally being seen, praying and fasting, and praying and fasting to be seen. We know the vast difference between those two things. Don't be like me where back in college, I had a roommate and I knew when he was done with class and I knew exactly when he would come back to the room so that when he opened the door, how conveniently he found me on my knees crying out to God in loud cries. Worst of sinners I am, right? What a hypocrite, right? Thankfully, I'm a little bit better, more over such shallowness and obnoxiousness, right? Now, what is going to motivate you to seek and serve God in secrecy when, honestly, seeking people's notice, seeking people's approval, doing it for the eyes eyes of others is so enticing, is it not? I mean, many of us struggle so much. Oh, I just want... People just to know a little bit of my sacrifice and my devotion to God, what I'm doing for him, right? Even just a little way. How are you going to be motivated, right? To say no to that and pursue God completely in secret for the audience of one where truly only he knows. Well, again, Jesus, in this passage, is appealing to your self-interest. He knows that it is hard. That's why he's motivating you by reward. Seek out the very best reward for yourself. Be after the greatest reward there is. Now, if you're hearing this, maybe some of you may be wondering in your mind, is it, is it right to be motivated to give and pray and fast by any kind of reward at all? I mean, shouldn't we just be doing these things for its own sake out of duty as Christians? Now, that's very spiritual if you think like that. Very noble of you. But you know what? That's actually not very realistic. That's actually not how we're wired as human beings. Human beings are always wired to do whatever they do, all that they do out of self-interest, out of what good it brings you. And that's not a wrong thing. That's not a wrong desire. That's just simply being human, right? Doing things out of self-interest is not 
wrong. There's a difference between self-interest and selfishness. What Jesus is talking about here is just doing things out of your own best self-interest. And that's why in this passage and throughout the sermon, I'm not, he actually does not ever condemn a desire to seek out a reward for yourself. He never does that. What he's condemning is when we seek a shallow reward, not the very best of rewards, right? If you're still struggling with this idea, let me give this excerpt that's uh, well-known from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. And some of you have heard this quote many times over the years, but I think it's worth repeating again because he gets at this so well. And he says, if there lurks in most modern minds that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant, he's the philosopher, ethicist, Immanuel Kant, and the Stoics, those are the Greek philosophers, and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, which is far better. We are far too easily pleased. That's what Jesus is getting at. Oh, how you live so foolishly. You chip yourself so many times. Now, what is this reward that we receive from God if we seek him in secret? What is promised to us? Is it things you want in life from him? Is it material prizes like money? Is it circumstances in your life to go your way? No. No. If that was a reward from God, that would be what we call a mercenary reward. You know what's a mercenary reward? It's a reward that doesn't match the desire. It's like marrying someone for their money. What's the proper fitting reward for love and romance? It's just marriage itself. It's committing to a person and being with that person, spending the rest of your life with that. That's the fitting, proper, consummate reward of love and romance in itself. Marrying a person for their money is using them, and that's mercenary. You see, when you seek after God for things that he might give, that's mercenary. And if you think about it, it actually makes God an idolater. It makes God an idolater if he were to allow you to just use him for lesser things. No, what you and I need is the reward of nothing less than God himself, where he reshapes our hearts so that we find him to be our all-sufficient treasure and reward. Now, when you hear that, maybe honestly, you're like, I knew you were going to say that. What's the reward that you get from God? God himself, more of himself. <laughs> Such a catch. I was expecting something, something else, something better. Or if you're kind of thinking it like that, you're not getting it. If God is to truly be for your very best, then he needs to give you his very best, himself. And when you get more of him, 
when your soul is more satisfied in him, delighting in him, resting in him, do you know what the effect of that is? It breaks the power, the snare of approval addiction in your life. It liberates you from the need to constantly do impression management. Impression management is such a heavy burden that we all carry more than we know. You want to be free from that? You want to experience a liberty that this world doesn't know and understand? You gain more of God himself as your reward. You drink more deeply of his fountain. Your itch, your need for approval is satiated fully by him. And you don't need the cheap chewing gum notice validation from others anymore. That's true reward of the highest kind. Jesus says, go after that. Now lastly, let's talk about the habits that will reap such reward in our lives. Hopefully your heart is not so hard that you're not stirred up to go more after the highest of reward himself. So what are the habits that will lead to more of that reward? We'll reap that. Well, what's obvious in this passage that's so easy to overlook is when Jesus talks about these disciplines, these practices, he says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, not if. You know, actually, in this passage, Jesus is not urging you convincing you to do these things. He's already assuming that if you're a Christian, you are. When you give, when you fast, when you, when you, fast, when you pray, not if. Right? You know, here's the thing. For a lot of us, as you're hearing this message, I was thinking about this as I was preparing. It's not the temptation to spiritually impress others. Right? Practice our righteousness for the eyes of others that hinders your giving and praying and fasting. Right? You know, I would say that years ago, more people in our churches, at the renewal churches, in, when it was more of a, this hyper-spiritual culture, struggle with this, right? living out our righteousness for the eyes of others. But sadly now, honestly, many of us don't even care to spiritually impress others because there's not a lot of deep motivation for deep spirituality in the first place, right? right? You're not even really motivated to seek after God, to really even press others about it. And that's where I think a lot of us are. You know, we'll do impression management about maybe our intellect or our abilities or our social consciousness or whatever, but not about our diligent pursuit of God. Generosity, praying, fasting are sorely lacking because of our comfort, our complacency, our endless distractions that have us nibbling, snacking at the table of the trivial, and it just ruins our appetite for the transcendent. For more of God, we need to pursue hard after God in these ways. Now, next Sunday, when you get to the next passage, verses 19 to 24, we're going to take a deeper dive into the practice, the discipline of giving, where Jesus says you are to store up for yourself. You hear that language? Go after your best reward, treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. And so that'll be next Sunday. But for today, as we close, I just want to say a word on the other two disciplines mentioned here in this passage, and that's fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer. First, fasting. Fasting is such a tragically neglected discipline, is it not? I mean, probably many of us, being honest, like really never fast. Maybe you do it. Good Friday, you know, because it's in the announcement, you know, 
try to fast today, you know, for service later on. Maybe some of us do it for Lent season that we're in now, right? And if you do it at all, say for Lent season, it's usually just giving up something just for the sake of giving up something and suffering painful withdrawal from that. Coffee, caffeine, Chinese food, whatever it is, right? Only then you're waiting the countdown till Easter. And once Easter is done, you go back right to it in binge mode, making up for lost time, right? What's the benefit in that, right? What's gained in that? What's the purpose of fasting? It's giving up what is good in order to gain something better. The emphasis is on gaining, not giving up. See that? So in addition to in abstaining from something, the purpose of that abstaining is to create more space in your life so that there is an alternative voracious feasting on something else. That's the point of fasting. And we give up not necessarily bad things, but even good things for something better, right? So we give up from time to time eating food. Food is a good and absolutely necessary thing, but there are times when we abstain from food to say sincerely from your heart through that, I am more hungry for you, God. I've just lost sight of you. I've grown far from you. I am more hungry for you, God. I need your word as my bread, even more than physical bread itself. That's fasting. Now, you may be thinking, you may be wondering, why can't you have both? Why can't you have food and God? Why can't you have entertainment and God? Why can't you enjoy around-the-clock social media and God? Again, these things aren't wrong, of course, in themselves, but you all know delighting in all kinds of things so often dull your desire for and delight in God. As John Piper wrote, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. That's why we abstain from the small to make more room in our souls, to stir up in our souls a greater appetite for the very best. You know, uh, to begin the year, we went through the short series on the Psalms, and I came on one of the Sundays and taught on Psalm 63. And some of you might remember in that message, I spoke about the power of habit in our lives. And I mentioned how Studies show that almost half of our lives is done out of habit, without even thinking, on autopilot. So in a real sense, you are the sum of your daily habits. What you do very naturally without thinking from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. Habits have a powerful, profound, soul-shaping, and life-shaping effect more than you even realize. So again, like I did in that message, let me ask you, what do your daily habits incline you toward and reinforce day after day after day? What are your daily habits sowing? What harvest Will your habits have you reap next week, next month, next year, next decade? What kind of person will your daily habits right now turn you to be?
You see, fasting is the discipline to rage against soul-numbing habits so that you might better pursue soul-nourishing habits. Fasting, if done right, is the discipline that can rehabituate your life and form new patterns. That's why Jesus says, when you fast, do it as a more regular part of your life. Not in the way like many do it during Lent, where you often become worse afterwards than before. Do your fasting where it rehabituates your life forms new patterns that enlarge your soul rather than shrivel it. And paired with that, fasting creates more space in your life for the most fundamental of practices. And that's prayer. And let me be more specific because in this passage, Jesus is not just speaking about prayer in general. He gives you a very specific prayer to pray, a prayer that we all know so well, the so-called Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that you can pray verbatim. Jesus says, you know what? You can plagiarize this and you won't be kicked out, all right? Just plagiarize, just cheat, plagiarize, use it. Or it's meant to be used as a model, a pattern of your prayer life. It's meant to be used regularly, if not daily. You notice in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I think because it's so familiar to us, we lost sight of how soul-shaping, life-transforming, sincerely praying this prayer is. There's a reason why we pray this prayer every single Sunday at renewal. Not if you do it mindlessly, but if you engage in that prayer because it profoundly changes your life. Right? Now, it would be a very worthy study to go through this prayer piece by piece and, and understand it all. And by the way, some years ago, we actually did that in our churches. We did a short series on the Lord's Prayer where we did a full message on each of the parts. And so if any of you are interested in going back and, and learning or relearning about that, you can go to, I don't know if it's on the mainline website, but it's on the Renewal West Philly website. Go to the sermons, look up the series on the Lord's Prayer, and that's a resource for you, hopefully to ignite, reignite your prayer life. But as I close here, let me just quickly mention the four parts to this prayer and how this model, as you pray it more, leads to a full, rich, deep, transformative prayer life. And those four parts are, first, adoration. How does this prayer start? Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Adoring God, who he is. Your heart crying, God, may your name lifted up, be lifted up, not mine. How, how much of the diet of your prayer life is adoration? Probably for many of us, all of us, not nearly enough. Maybe it's not even there. This is first and foremost in the Lord's Prayer for a reason, adoration. And then secondly, submission. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Orienting your life to God's kingdom purpose, his agenda, his will, his ways for you. And then thirdly, you get to give us this day our daily bread, petition, petition. You can go to God. He invites you to go to him with all your needs, big and small. But you know what? For many of us, this is the whole of the diet of our prayer life. All we do is petition. It is so crucial you get the order Notice it comes halfway down the prayer after adoration and submission. 
When you get that order right, that's what will guard you from not going to God with your needs, but going to him with your greeds. Just using him. You know, that petition says, give us this day our daily bread, not give us this day our daily filet mignon, our daily caviar and champagne, right? How are you gonna guard against using God like that? Adoration, submission, petition, and then last but surely not least, confession and aspiration. What is confession and aspiration? It's repentance, confessing sin, confessing before God ways in which you're going wrong so that you turn back the other way and you desperately ask God for his help, his power, in order to be able to do that. Something we do every Sunday at Renewal, repentance. Now let me, as I close, try to be as very practical as possible. And let me give you a spiritual hack you know, our day is all about life hacks of all kinds for all kinds of things, right? Well, to jumpstart your devotional life, the next time, if you haven't done it in a while, you do your quiet time or whatever you call it, here's a quick spiritual hack for you to make it deeper. And this is something that will wedge your Bible reading and your praying, something that should be going hand in hand. Maybe some of us struggle to bring those two together when you read your Bible and you pray. Maybe those are two separate things for you. How can you wed that together in a meaningful time with God? Well, use the Lord's Prayer and those four parts as your model. You know, for those of you who have a hard time, and that's probably all of us, Bible reading, we get lost in the details and the weeds. I don't understand this verse and all that. Just keep it simple. This is what you do. Read a passage Find one thing in that passage that will lead you to adore God. God, I am amazed at who you are from these verses. Hallowed be your name. May it be more about you rather than me. Then next, find something in the passage that will lead you to submission. And pray that. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in this world. And then look for something in the passage that will bring you to God to call upon him with your need, to petition him. And then lastly, find something in the passage that will call you to confess your sin, repent, and turn back to him for his grace, his help, his power to live more in righteousness. If you do that right there, that is a rich devotional time. And honestly, it doesn't even take that long. You could do it in 15 minutes if done without distraction, with focus. Let me close by urging you, because as I'm saying this, my guess is that for some of you in this room, you're like, you know what? I hear you on seeking after God fasting, praying, on and on. But you know what? I'm busy right now. I'm tired. I'm unmotivated. And as you say that, if you're there in that place, I share that sentiment with you in the season with our baby, right? When he's down for a nap, the few precious times during the day, it's not my first inclination to seek after God and pray to him. I want to take a nap myself, right? It's hard in this season for me also to, with strong motivation, seek after him, fight against the flesh. But you know what? That's where you need to fix your eyes on the reward, the prize. Because you know what? You will always make time for what you value. You will always see to it that you do that which you prize. If I told you that this coming week, if every day this week you prayed for one hour, that's really hard to do, is it not? Just sit there for one hour without distraction, pray. 
But if I asked you to every day this week pray for one hour and at the end of the week you will get $1,000. Heck, for you college students with your bank account, $100. Nobody in this room, you busy parents with kids, would have no problem finding time, sitting there praying for an hour each and every day, looking at your watch, clocking in and clocking out to get that cash at the end of the week. No problem, right? We have, if you have eyes of faith, truly far greater, far satisfying reward than money or man's approval. Jesus died to bring you to the greatest treasure reward to experience that to the full, the presence of God himself and all that he is. I close with the lines from this hymn that we're gonna sing to end our service that we all know. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now, and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Let me invite us. Let's all rise together. Uh, we're spending, spending a lot of time sitting. And as we're right now in the presence of God, He is here. And He is saying to you, You seek me earnestly, you will surely be rewarded by me with more of me. I pray that the Holy Spirit in some way, in some measure, has moved your heart, stirred up your heart through this word to want that, to long more of that. Hopefully the Holy Spirit has made you more tired, more weary of that which you've been nibbling on stuffing your soul with small things that has been honestly shriveling it rather than nourishing it. Whether it be just the things of the world or for those of you who've been just living